This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening today. Uh, my special guest is Dr. Erwin Redliner. Uh, you may have seen him on TV during the last four months speaking the truth about what's been going on with this pandemic, uncomfortable truths, uh, uh, inconvenient truths, but uh, nonetheless, things that we have needed to hear. And he's been a, just a, for me, a, a breath of fresh air um, uh, during during this uh, very dark time. Dr. Redliner, uh, is a, he's, a, he's a renowned uh, pediatrician. Let me just go through his whole CV here. Yeah, he's a scholar. He's an advocate for children's health, and he's an expert on disaster preparedness. In 1987, Dr. Redliner founded the Children's Health Fund in New York City, along with his wife, Karen Redliner, and singer-songwriter Paul Simon of Simon & Garfunkel. In 1993, Erwin Redliner served as a member of the White House Task Force on Health Reform under President Clinton. 1997 to 2003, Irwin also um, held a lead role in the development of the Children's Hospital uh, here in, uh, in New York, where he served as the president and, uh, and also the chief spokesperson. Dr. Redliner is currently uh, the director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative and the senior research scholar for the National Center for Disease Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, and has written a number of books and a seminal book uh, that you should read called Americans at Risk, Why We Are Not Prepared for Mega Disasters and What We Can Do Now. And now, by the way, he wrote that book in 2006. So like Lori Garrett that we had on uh, before, um, we have with us a prescient uh, thinker, author, and in this case, uh, a doctor, um, who has given much of his adult life uh, to this cause. Welcome, Dr. Irwin Redliner. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Very kind introduction and uh, so happy to be with you. So let's just jump right into this. Actually, tell us, tell us the end of the podcast here at the beginning. Tell us right now, what is our way out? What is the path? Where's the roadmap? I know it exists. It, I know it requires a number of things that either we all as citizens need to do, but there's things that doctors and scientists need exactly. to do. And then there's exactly. things that our political leaders need to do. There is a way out of this. If the kids are going to school right now in Japan and New Zealand and a number of other countries, yeah. and, people, and, and all I hear from all my friends with kids, are they going to go back to school? Mike, do you know, are they going to go back to school in September? And I said, well, it doesn't look good. I don't know what to say. I don't know, but, but, there's got to be, it just, this now feels, especially after this latest upsurge, uh, this, uh, of, of new cases that we're, that we're, as we're recording this now, we're well yeah. we're over 60,000 a day on our way to a hundred thousand a day, maybe by when August this month. Yeah. So, uh, it could be, and it's accelerating at a rate that, uh, is surprising to many of the people who have been working on this issue, but to get to your question, Mike, you, you said, where does it end? And let me start there, and then we can unpack it, and there's a lot to unpack. But I, I think we're heading to where many experts uh, believe we were going anyway at the beginning of all this, which was 50%, half of Americans, if not 60 to 65%, would eventually be infected with this, what the formal name is, SARS-CoV-2, or the virus, the coronavirus that causes the COVID-19 disease. That means that we are 
not doing anywhere enough uh, to to in any way dilute that uh, worry that we were talking about back in early March. And uh, on the other hand, I should also say that that just because we're going to have half the U.S. population, let's say, uh, infected with the uh, with the coronavirus, which is 160 million people, uh, the vast majority of, of us who get that uh, infection will have very little and sometimes no symptoms. About 15% of the people who get infected will uh, need hospital care, at least in the emergency room, if not admitted. And a very small percentage will actually end up, you know, not surviving. But a very small percentage of 160 million people is a huge number of individuals who will uh, who will die from the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 infection. And, uh, but that number... I'm quite convinced will not be less than 800,000 people and could be as many as a million and a half people. Wow. And there's a lot to think about there. And uh, there's a lot that could be done. I just heard uh, this evening on MSNBC that uh, Joy Reid, Joy Reid was talking about people making predictions that we're going to have 200,000 deaths by uh, election day in 2020. Uh, I think it'll actually be more than that, but certainly by the end of the year, we could be seeing numbers that are significantly higher than what I was just saying. But you're saying that it could be, it could be by the end of the year, 800,000 to a million and a half yeah. death, yeah. not yeah. cases, new cases, death. deaths. Death. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. So yeah, it, it's, it's just really extraordinary. And the other thing that's so interesting about this is uh, that everybody is affected. Every single human being on the planet and certainly in the U S of course, has to be worried about themselves, their family members, their loved ones, their neighbors, and so on, or ourselves. And it, it's just a dramatically different kind of disaster than any of us have experienced. And I've been to and de- dealing with many, many natural disasters and terrorism and 9-11. But it's, for me, as a professional in this business, I've always been separated from the actual action. Even when we had, you remember, uh, Michael, in, in uh, 2012, Superstorm Sandy, which was hit hit New York City badly, but it was way downtown. It was in the in the Rockaways, and I'm living on you know uh, way north in New York City, and you know our electricity was fine, and uh, we went out to dinner. We did our usual thing, uh, but for the people that were in the middle of it, they suffered quite a bit. But so I'm saying that this is the first time nobody is excluded. Everybody is affected in one way or another. And if you think about people with children and their concerns about their kids getting back to school, uh, those people have very, very serious concerns. And it's all complicated. There's not one single aspect of this that is easy to figure out. But I will say this. So first of all, the existence of this coronavirus and the COVID-19 is a fact of nature. It developed uh, in central China uh, in probably one of the open meat markets of exotic meats that happen. This kind of uh, virus develops and it, it, it happens. It happens all the time. Typically, the virus will appear in an, some sort of animal and be transmitted to one person. But it becomes a pandemic when the transmission goes from one person to another person to many people and then goes outside uh, international borders and we have a, a global pandemic. But that was nobody's fault. That's where the nobody's fault piece stops. Because 
So many actions after this virus developed have brought us to a place where we should not have been uh, at this point in the 21st century. We, human actions and inactions have caused us to be far more devastating than it ever should have been in the first place. Viruses have been with us forever. Let me just put it forever. this way. Right? And will be. Yeah. And will be. This is, this is just part, you might as well call it part of nature. Yes. And in nature has various ways to, that it does to, it does things that, uh, uh, it controls us in that sense. Um, I don't know if that's its purpose is, is to, uh, to control human population or whatever, but, um, you know, certainly in hun- for hundreds of years, it literally would kill millions of people. Uh, and thousands nobody- of years. So it's really the beginning yeah. of, you know, of civilization. Yes. Okay. And that's absolutely true. Exactly. So, but now we're supposedly <laughs> smarter and we know we should know, uh, what this stuff is, even if we d- have never seen the COVID-19 before, yeah. we do know, we do have kind of an idea when, when a new virus comes along that there are certain things we need to immediately investigate, study, yeah. and, and then come up with uh, some kind of plan. The plan may be uh, uh, a whole bunch of things that we've tried in terms of the isolation, Correct. Uh, in terms of the, the face masks, the sanitary conditions, our hands, soap and water. Um, it could, it, but it's also, um, uh, working on treatments so that when you do get sick, you don't get so deathly sick. Yep. Um, it's coming up with, uh, maybe a vaccine. I just try to talk people out of this vaccine, uh, hope because I don't know of a vaccine other than in the movie contagion that, yep. <laughs> that vaccine, they invented that vaccine in 117 days, but yep. in, 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 in real life. I don't think vaccines come along that quickly. No, uh, the fastest we've no. ever developed a vaccine was for mumps, you know, the childhood illness that took four years. And there's mm. other diseases that we've been working on for decades, you know, hepatitis C and HIV AIDS, et cetera, that we've never come up with a vaccine for. So I think you're right to be uh, less than 100% enthusiastic, Michael, about when and even if we'll develop a vaccine. We probably will, but... You know, I wouldn't bet the ranch on it. But, um, you know, the first thing, you know, so, so let's say we had this virus that uh, was starting to show its sort of ugly head. And, uh, you know, it's probably actually the first case may have been in November, certainly by December in China. So the first thing is, do we, how do we identify the appearance of a potentially lethal viral problem, viral problem as early as possible? We have to identify it. And then we have to contain it. And we didn't do either of those things very well. And then we had problems because, you know, for political reasons or ideological reasons, uh, China was, uh, let's say, reluctant uh, to let the rest of the world know what was going on. Their scientists were very, very good, knew that something was up. There was a great deal of evidence, certainly in early January, that... uh, Something was happening that we needed to pay attention to. That's the moment where they should have been shouting from the rooftops, inviting in World Health Organization and experts from other country, countries, including the U.S. That did not happen. And it didn't start happening till we already had a level of uh, loss of control that we're paying a big price for even now. Compounded, of course, by incredibly ignorant, incompetent, actions on the part of the U.S. government, which really exacerbated everything. 
Yeah, no, we, I think we've become the laughing stock of the world at this point, to the point where um, the EU, the EU, the entire European Union won't let us in, along with a lot of other. Do you blame uh, them? No, I absolutely no. I would encourage them not to let us in at this point. Um, but but it in in Wuhan, um, what, how many how many cases were there eventually in Wuhan of people who came down? With uh, I, I think it wasn't around something like fifty thousand or yeah I thought it was closer to seventy thousand but yeah 70, that range. yeah 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 that, these are cases now not deaths correct okay correct. cases seven yeah. about seventy thousand yeah. okay so we are now almost at seventy thousand cases a day in the United States so so am I right in saying that we're ha- we're getting Wuhan one Wuhan every day that's a very good way of putting it and. It's true, and we're going to be uh, exceeding what Wuhan was got uh, per day not in not too long from now. You remember just a couple of weeks ago that Anthony Fauci from the NIH said that, hey, folks, don't be surprised if we start seeing 100,000 cases a day. Um, and what he was talking about, by the way, Michael, was 100,000 te- uh, cases per day that are confirmed by testing. And everybody knows that we're not testing enough people. So it's probably 10 times that number. So hold on to your hat, but it's not out of the question that we'll be seeing a million cases a day uh, in the next you know, few weeks. Yeah, even Trump's, even Trump's CDC, I'm sorry to have to call it Trump's CDC, but uh, unfortunately, you see the pain and they're, they're, whenever you see anybody from the CDC on TV, it looks like a hostage tape. Uh, and I feel yeah. bad for I feel bad for them. Yeah. Um, but they, syndrome, uh, yeah, manifesting itself, right? Exactly, yeah. Exactly, right. So, so the, even they have said, though, you we may need to be multiplying this by at least ten times. Yeah. So, and and maybe twenty times. Yeah. So, right, right now, if we're on our way to a hundred thousand cases a day, it's probably a million cases a day. And when we get to that, when we get to up to a million, then it's look what you said. What we found out here in New York City. And there was yeah. a story in the Times this week about one of the city's clinics that does the the free testing yeah. found that I think the number was sixty eight percent of the people they tested had antibodies, meaning they they it looks like they have already had COVID nineteen. Right, exactly. Sixty eight percent. So your figure, the possibility that half of us will eventually yeah. have, and maybe not even know we had it. Yeah, um, exactly. But but fifty percent. Yeah. is is a lot Six, but this was 68% and i thought yeah it probably is a lot more than we're thinking a lot more that we know and a lot more is going to happen than anybody is willing to to say on on tv i just i think that um <sighs> listen I, I, here you know one yeah. of the, one of my heroes in this field that I, I know a little bit is michael osterholm and uh yeah. I don't know, you know him, you know his name, yes. Mike? Yeah. Yes, he, from uh, Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah, a very wise uh, man and uh, expert. He said recently that he thinks he knows less right now about COVID-19 than he did six weeks ago. Wow. Which, yeah, and it's because, you know, is there a mutation actually happening in Houston? What is the actual uh, infectivity rate that we're seeing? Um, what about, is it a lung disease or is it a vascular disease? I mean, almost every other day now we're hearing a piece of information that's like, oh my God, we didn't know this. What, what do we actually understand about this? 
And one of the problems is that we have the most anti-science administration in modern history, and uh, we don't have the information that we should be developing at a much faster rate than we, we have been. Uh, we have incompetence in many of Trump's agencies, and it's been a deadly combination for the U.S. And like you said before, an embarrassment. You know, you said you, would, you don't blame them, nor do I, for not letting us there. I, I would have stopped letting us in on Election Day in 2016, but that's a whole other story. But uh, <laughs> we're, 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 we're here. We're here. We have to deal yeah. with it. Yeah. We're here. Please, please forgive us. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, the, uh, so back to my, my initial big question here, the roadmap, the way out, yeah. the path. Uh, it's okay to say, well, we don't know the path. We, we're trying a number of things that may, that may work, but um, it, it just it seems like when, when, when the rise began a couple of weeks ago, yeah, um, after New York had really not just flattened out, but went way down. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, that um, all of a sudden, you know, we were, it was 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 cases a day. Yeah. And, yeah. and all of Europe, all of Europe, which by the way, is more than a hundred million more people than us, yeah. than, than the That's United right. States. That's right. The, that they were down to 4,000 a day. Yeah. New case, 4,000 new cases when we were reporting 40,000 new yeah. cases a day. And, and, and you read about how some of these countries, the kids are going back to school and all this. So, so what is, what, obviously they're doing something right and it, and it hasn't gotten rid of it in those no. countries, but they're, they seem to be able to function yeah. in a way that they're not losing their minds. And, and that is not the case here. And it is not the case, Michael. And this is, this is really one of the imponderables here. You know, it's like, if you, if you were looking at a graph right now, and I'm sure you've seen this on TV, but if you look at the entire uh, European Union and you look at the, the, uh, the collective numbers, you see a rise uh, in April, it reached the peak, and then it gradually came down. And you put that, uh, you uh, uh, impose on top of that graph what the U.S. looks like, and we are completely out of control compared to Europe, which is still having cases, but it is dramatically different. We have lost our ability to figure this out. We have now an outbreak in the Sun Belt and in the South. That's extraordinary. Houston may actually replicate what happened in New York City. And it's, it's just really crazy. And they can put people back to school and open businesses because their caseloads are so low they, by doing a lot of testing and by doing the so-called contact tracing, they can follow up the few cases that they get. We can't do that in the Southwest now. There's just too many cases. We don't have enough people to do the contact tracing. We're not doing enough testing. So it's a, it's a pandemic wildfire, basically, that we're dealing with. Um, that makes the whole idea of in what environment do you send the children back to school in? I mean, I have five grandchildren in New York City, and I'm worried about all of them. I, you know, when did they go back to school? How are they going back to school? And, you know, it's the city and the state are pondering this. There's lots of alternatives. But, um, you know, to say that we have a safe way of getting kids back to school right now is not exactly accurate. 
On the other hand, here's this point. You know, we have 1.1 million children in New York City's public school system. 70, 7 out of 10 of those children live in, in uh, families that are either uh, below or near the poverty line. Those parents need to get back to work. They need to work. And they need to have their children in school in order to do that. So we have this kind of tension between the need to get people back to work and the desperate situation families are in and uh, not wanting to put our children or their teachers or the school staff in danger. And this is no easy task, Michael. It's, it's really, it's really, you know, I don't, I don't envy the governors and mayors that have to make decisions like this, but that's where we are. Would we be in this, in this pickle of what to do about school if we had first done what the other countries did in terms of all the measures that the citizens needed to take and, and, and everybody listened to the doctors and the scientists? I mean, if we had that kind of leadership from the very beginning, would, would we even be talking about this right now in terms of, of the, the, whether there's going to be any school? Let, let me say categorically, we absolutely could have avoided this situation that we're in, including the new outbreaks in the Sun Belt. It is ridiculous. It is so frustrating because we knew from the beginning that we can't have 50 states making up what they're doing because we did not have national leadership. It's worse than not having national leadership. We had a liar in chief who denied and denied that we even had a problem for so long. He, he openly contradicts his own experts. It, you, you, you feel like you're in some sort of surreal uh, scenario here where you're hearing, it's, it's almost like we're being gaslighted by the President of the United States. He's saying things that are in, that are in absolute opposition to the realities that people are experiencing around them. And the, the, the core of this was two things that happened. One is we really messed up with the development of testing. So we're way behind and still are behind most of the European uh, Union and the uh, many, many of the countries in Asia. That's number one. Number two, we did not get a consistent, clear guidance from the federal government that said, as opposed to what the president did, which is basically on many conversations with the governors and conference calls, told me, you're on your own, do it, do whatever. And, uh, and he left them to figure out what the policy should be. He left them holding the bag in terms of not having enough personal protective equipment. And he really dropped it by not giving, not allowing his own experts to give advice uh, that would be a national policy for all the states to follow. So at one point we had, uh, if you remember, the mayor of Seattle, where it was a big problem in the beginning, saying no more gatherings of more than 250 people. And New York City mayor saying no more gatherings more than 100 people. Another state saying 10 people. That was, that was crazy. We needed the White House to let the CDC and the other experts say, this is what we would like to see for the entire country. And this messing around, I'm, I'm trying to control my language here, but this messing around, this lack of leadership and consistent messaging caused us a tremendous problem that we're paying a big price for still. Okay, so we can't go back. We can't, can't go, back go back to that. Nope. Here we are now. Uh, we're in the middle of July, virtually, and, and, and we're, we're – what? <laughs> What do we do now? 
um, where it, because it, it, I can't accept the answer that there's nothing we can do. I, I can't. I, I just. I, I just have got to believe that there's enough of us who are smart enough and enough of us who are committed enough to um, do what needs to be done to get our fellow Americans on board and to, um, you know, we can't wait. We can't wait the six months for no, new leadership. Can't wait. And and here's the thing about it too. You know, it's you know, you're one of the greatest communicators about these big issues in our in our country and have been for a long time. And so I should ask you that question, but here's what I'm writing right now is a piece, an op-ed piece that says we're at a crossroads. We are at a point where either this is going to end up running its course, which is going to cost us maybe a million lives, as we said earlier. Uh, and you know, the country is going to pay that horrible price, or we're going to get control of this by, following some basic rules. Don't forget, this is not like the seasonal flu. If you get, you know, the regular seasonal flu, your doctor can prescribe a an antiviral medication like Tamiflu, and it's much less lethal than the COVID-19. Uh, we don't have that. What do we have? We have the, the basic tools, wearing a mask, uh, social distancing, or physical distancing. Um, and when we need to, we can just put ourselves back in a sheltering uh, in place reality, which was very difficult and, and disruptive and all of that. We opened our businesses, by the way, way too early, starting at the end of April of this year. And we shouldn't have done that. And then we have the politicization of this whole uh, agenda around COVID, where the president of the United States thinks it's perfectly fine to hold a, a rally, a political rally in Tulsa a couple of weeks ago or that whatever he did at Mount Rushmore uh, last week and so on. And the example has created a major problem. So the question about what can we do, the things we can do individually, which include the mass and everything, but we're fighting a somewhat of an uphill battle. And I think the way out is to try to get the, the entire public agreeing to following the rules here. Very, very difficult. You know, the, you know, you watch what was going on in Tulsa. People crowded together and no one wearing masks and all of that. It's like not wearing a mask has replaced the MAGA hat. You know, if you see somebody walking around the street without a mask yeah. and not keeping themselves separate, you know, you, you basically know where they stand politically Yeah, for the most part. And so this is the problem. And I, I, uh, I think we have to, anyway, the piece that I'm writing says we either have to take our medicine now, which means go back to sheltering in place nationally and absolutely must wear masks and socially separate. Um, or it's just going to keep lingering and popping up in different places around the country. Now, just because New York, by the way, seems to be out of the woods, we're not actually out of the woods. Why? Because we have millions of people that are still highly susceptible and vulnerable. They're older. They have pre-existing conditions. And uh, they're still vulnerable to catching COVID-19, Michael. So this is, this is what we're dealing with, a big grown-up dilemma. Either get disciplined and follow the rules that our public health experts are telling us, or we're going to pay this price of uh, a lot more fatalities in the U.S. If a million people die, or 800,000, yeah. or a million and a half, 
just so people can just think about that number, that means I think every one of us pretty much will know somebody who has died. It may be a loved one in your immediate family. It may be in your extended family. It may be a friend. It may be in the neighborhood. It may be, you know, but we are all going to know death. Yes, we are all going to experience loss on some level. If it's that many people and, and I, I don't know what that will do to us psychologically mass psychology. I'm talking about here, but I, I, See, like, well, like you said, you know, thank you for your kind words about me, but, but I too have been, I've been trying to write something here of, of what to do. And, and again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but I, I do, I live, I think in the real world and I have, this is what I like, can I just, I haven't shared this publicly and, uh, and, and, um, but I'm going to write it and and post it somewhere, but I, uh, maybe I'll I'll share it with you. There are some people listening, but I, that's okay. Yeah, I, I think, I think. Uh, let's let's start with this, and 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 you know, I am somebody I think most people know is supporting Bernie Sanders, and yeah, and uh, and like Bernie have said, of course we're voting uh, for Joe Biden. Yeah, but but I think that because we cannot wait, yeah, the the four months until November third, and we cannot wait the six. Uh, plus months to January twentieth. All right, we, are, we will be doomed if we are still uh, if we are the hamster on the same treadmill. Yeah, uh, you know, on January twentieth. Uh, well, you won't need to replay what I just said about loss because it will no. be guaranteed. It'll be so, guaranteed for sure. So this is what I think, uh, and I, I've only met Joe Biden a couple times, and yeah. and both were great experiences. Very nice guy, uh, very yeah. deep, decent human being. Um. But I think that we need to, you know, in countries with parliamentary systems, uh, whoever the, the party is that's out of power has a shadow government. Yeah. Uh, so there's the shadow foreign minister. There's the shadow, uh, you know, head of the Justice Department or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Foreign, you know, Secretary of State, whatever. I think right now, if I were Joe Biden, <laughs> if, if I had his ear, yeah, I would say to him, you need to not declare victory. Don't do that because... We yeah. went through that in 2016, doing a, doing the end zone dance on the two yard yeah. line. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but what if you just began to govern? I mean, as a leader, not as not as the legally the president of the United States, but what you are a leader. The people want you. They can't wait for you to be in there. The majority of Americans uh, agree with the Democratic Party position on just about every issue. Whether it's a minimum wage, whether it's mass incarceration, women's rights, you know, go down the list. Exactly. Every every opinion poll shows the majority of Americans agree with the Democratic Party position. So we have the majority of the people with us. Yeah. What if you, Joe Biden, were just to were just to say, and I don't know how many days away we are from Dr. Fauci getting bounced. It's sure the lead up right now, we we've seen this lead up before, the way Trump behaves. Uh, before I think he's maybe has just an ounce of of awareness in him mm-hmm. to know the absolute damage he will do to himself if he gets rid of Dr. Fauci. But we have seen him do these things. Yeah, I was before. gonna say would so, you be shocked? I would not be no, shocked. No, I would not be shocked at all. But I and and Joe Biden has already said that, you know, Dr. Fauci has an important job 
in the Biden administration. Yeah. And, and he will never be muzzled. Yeah. Uh, he will tell the American people the truth uh, instead of the hostage tape truth. As I Yeah, say. yeah, yeah. But but what if Joe Biden just, you know, in, in one of his nice talks to the American people, a fireside chat or whatever it is, and just say, look, um, we still have to have the election. I still need you to get out and vote. They, the other side, are going to try to limit the vote, suppress the vote as best they can. So right. job one right now is November 3rd. Everybody has to vote. And right now, right now, everybody, assuming we're back to work, everybody's got to take that day off. They could put in for it right now. The day, the day before, the day, yes. the day of the election, we all have another job to do that day, that weekend before. But, but for now, we have people dying. And now we have more people dying. And, and we have, as you and I are recording this, I, what is it now? It's, we're pushing 140,000 deaths yep. Yep. Uh, yep. in this country. It, oh, my God. Erwin, uh, if, if, if we had a 9-11 style attack tomorrow that didn't kill 3,000 people, but killed 140,000 Americans. Can you imagine? Can, can you, you imagine yeah, our, yeah. our heads, our response, our, our coming together? Our everything, what would happen if, 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 if in, you know, they, they, they said the deaths got, you know, the deaths in New York city now are down. I don't, what are they like five a day? Maybe now yeah. it's, 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 it's pretty low. And maybe yet, yeah, exactly. And yet if there were a sniper on one of the tall, tall buildings in New York city that killed five people today, it would be the entire 11 o'clock newscast tonight. It of would be it would. all of our, there's a sniper loose. And the sniper yeah. killed five people today. He's going to yeah. kill five people tomorrow. We would be beside ourselves. Exactly. And if we had a terror attack that 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 killed this many uh, people as uh, the COVID-19 has already killed the United States, we would start freaking World War III is what we would do. Can yes. you imagine? Yes. If, if we could identify a culprit, we... we it's, it's almost unimaginable the kind of reaction that... Uh, Americans would actually demand, and this particular president would be enthusiastic about, and we are treating it in some kind of crazy political way now, Michael, and it's, like I keep saying, we're paying a price, we're going to pay a price, and I love that idea about Biden leading, because he, instead of using the future tense about, here's what I would do, or here's what I'm going to do. Do it now. He says, this is what we need to do now, fellow Americans. We need to do this right now. I don't care what the White House is saying. You must wear masks. You must continue to separate. You may have to actually go back into sheltering in place. And yeah. this is what we are needing to do right this minute. I think that'd be very powerful, really. If he went on, went on TV tonight... And yeah. maybe no, maybe nobody will give him a half hour, so he'll, the the campaign will have to buy the half hour. But there's no campaign speech. There's no you know uh, vote for me. None of this. It's all about I am you. I am one of you. I am an American. And and yes, they the late night comedians have made jokes about me being in my basement, and 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 Trump made a joke about my mask. But but I'm doing what all of us need to do. I'm vulnerable. You're vulnerable. And we all have to do this together. So I'm asking you tonight, all of you, my fellow Americans, to agree, starting immediately, that anytime you leave the house, you are wearing a mask. 
And in fact, if you have people that go in and out of the house because of work or school or whatever, you need to do it in the house because the Chinese, you know, when they finally told the truth about what happened, yeah. Yeah. 70% of the people in China who died of COVID-19 were killed by a family member who tested positive in the beginning, yeah. went home and infected the rest of the household. When the Chinese figured that out, that was the end of that. If you tested positive, you went to a dorm or a hotel or, or something. You, did not, that was you didn't go back definitive. So, yeah. Can you get Basel to get Biden on the phone right now so we could talk to him? We'll do a conference. <laughs> ba- Basel, Basel's even closer to Biden uh, than I am. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm certain he's, uh, he's listening to us over there uh, in uh, in his uh, uh, secluded quarantine department. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it, uh, no, location. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. No, I honestly, I think if I called him up, I think he'd take my call. And I just say to him, look. I know he would it, take your call. Of course he would take your call. Yeah, and I and I just say, you know, Joe, Mr. Vice President. You know, uh, but, yeah, but he's yeah. the kind of, you really could just say Joe to him. And certainly and, now. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah and, and it's like, you know, tell not just, not just the sanitary things and everybody, we're all going to agree to do that. Fine. Number one. Number two, I have an idea that we can all do right now in terms of planning for school school or no school or half school in the fall. But let's not wait till September to figure it out. Let's do that now. You know, he could just tick down a list of things that, that, you know, we don't, you, you, our fellow Americans, you don't need to be wait. You don't need to wait to be told to do this. You don't need to say, oh, we don't have somebody in the white house who's leading us. Yeah. We all don't say things we already know, but you know who we have each other. Yes, we We do each other and we can lead. And join in with each other. And yeah. when yeah. we, we, the majority who believe in universal health care and these other things, and, and sadly, there's that percentage that don't, I think when they see us behaving not only in this way, but also not losing our loved ones. Yes. And yeah. as they lose their loved ones, um, you know, I, I have seen this over the years, people that take a hard position on, uh, yeah. you know, uh, a, a, a fertilized egg is a human being and they will never leave that position until someone in their family or themselves finds themselves you know, with an unplanned pregnancy. And then, and then they figure it out that not only should this woman have a choice yes. uh, that a fertilized egg actually <clears throat> isn't a human being, just like a seed isn't a flower and a stem isn't a flower. A flower is a flower. And, 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 um, and even if it's a religious thing that some, we all, all, any of us who've been spiritual or religious or whatever in our lives know that sometimes we just, we just have to sin. We just have to, because we are that we're not perfect. Don't beat yourself up. If, if you, if, if this is an unplanned pregnancy and you shouldn't have it, we have a legal way uh, for you in a safe way. Uh, yeah. to do this. But that's what I've watched over the years. I've watched people change their political position once it affected them personally. And you were right. That the description you gave about Hurricane Sandy, uh, that I too was in New York those those few days. And yeah. I was in that other part of town that literally I couldn't believe when I, I I was I actually went for a walk at 930 that night. Yeah. In the, in the and yeah. came back and turned the eleven o'clock news on and oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Out in Queens and and down in uh, Chelsea and and uh, yeah, uh, I mean the Hudson River had come up to Tenth Avenue. Yeah, and, yeah. 
incredible, incredible. It was, and I, how could this happen? I was here. Yeah. But if you don't have the personal anecdotal sort of experience, sometimes you just don't know. And, and I think, I think that vice president Biden, um, I think people would listen to this and he could just start off by saying, this is not, don't forget, I don't care if you're Democratic, Republican, whatever. It's, we've got to save each other and we can do this. We have so many examples in our history where we've pulled together. And we've yeah. By the way, the, to your point too, what's interesting now is that, you know, when the Northeast was the primary epicenter for COVID, it was one thing, well, with the blue states. Now we have how many dark red states do we have now that are being inundated? You know, Texas. This is, I think, a lot of people who may have been extreme Trump supporters or at least Republican voters for all their lives are seeing something that is undermining their belief uh, that the president knows what he's doing because he doesn't. And it's uh, the phenomenon of now this this epidemic, this pandemic, getting deep into the heart of Texas and the Sun Belt is a really, really important message that would support what you are saying. This is not a political problem. It's a incredible biological threat and crisis that we're facing. And we have to be doing the same thing, all of us, right now. Yes, together. And these are actual things we can do every day. And, and not just, and not just, you know, everyday people having to do this, but also, you know, Biden can appeal to doctors, all the ER doctors, all the nurses, all the nurses, aides, all the people who are the custodians in our hospitals. They've seen it all. I've talked to them. They write to me. I mean, the stories that they've sent me of what they have witnessed, they know the truth. And it's, and you know what they have? They have extreme empathy. They're not thinking, oh, we're in a blue state here. Look at these, look at these poor bastards in Florida. They're like, what can I do to help the nurses in Florida? What can I do to help the people of Texas? And, and I, look, there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of cynical people on the, on the left who are very much like, okay, well, they didn't believe it. They belong to believe Trump. So, you know, good luck. Good luck, Texas. That can't be our, our no, position. No, 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 a- absolutely we, not. That is we have to be there. They yeah. are our brothers and our sisters and our fellow yeah, citizens. Absolutely. And, and just because, you know, they got, they got hoodwinked here. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're stupid. They just believed, they believed, they believed it's, it's, um, I've had this happen to me before, you know, in my, in my life, I'll just tell you a quick story. Of, of why I have this empathy for people in Arizona uh, or Oklahoma or, or, or whatever. The, yeah. um, so the night I won the Oscar was the, it was the fifth night of the Iraq war. And I went up and gave my Oscar speech to, you know, to tell Bush mm-hmm. that, you know, he was wrong. And uh, I got booed uh, off the stage. Oh, people were so mad at me uh, for bringing politics into the Oscars. And I walked off the stage and the stage hand came up to me backstaging, just gets right in my ear. I thought he was going to punch me. Gets right in my ear and he goes, he goes, asshole. <laughs> just screams right in my ear. And then security like <laughs> grabbed me and they, they like whisk me away. Yeah. And so, okay, jump ahead. Uh, I don't know, two, three years later, I'm on the tonight show with uh, Jay Leno and I'm, you know, I'm on as a guest and the show's over. And uh, the guy that was doing the boom mic comes up to me and uh, he says, God, I never thought I would uh, get to have this moment with you. And, um, and I just, I just want to apologize to you. And tears. That was the same guy. It's the same guy. 
his tears, <laughs> tears start coming down of his eyes. He goes, you were right. We invading Iraq. You know, I know people have lost their sons, their, their nephews. Their, their, you, you, and, I, and on your night of the Oscars, I ruined it by screaming into your ear that word. And I'm I and he's now just sobbing. He's shaking. And I like I put my arms around him. I give him a, oh big, goodness, a big hug. Is, and I said, God. Don't stop. You don't need to apologize to me. What did you do wrong? All you did was you believed your president. You're supposed to believe what the president yeah. of the United States says. He's supposed to be telling the truth. All you did was believe him. That was your crime. You know, and I said, don't, don't, you do not need to apologize. Plus, what a great I, response. Oh, it was such a, it was such yeah, a, well, yeah. yes, it was such a moment. And I was like, oh, yes, my I know this is why this is a good country. And that people eventually, it was two years later now of the war. He'd seen what, you know, there were no weapons of mass destruction. It was all bullshit. And, and, and the fact that he thought he had a moment to have this chance again to meet me and, and, and try to seek forgiveness, which was, I didn't told him he didn't need. Plus, I said, you know, I, I've been telling the story for two years about you yelling asshole in my ear. You can't take that away from me. <laughs> no. so, so, but it's, but it's, I, but so this is how I feel toward the people of Texas and Florida and Arizona. And, and, and I community. agree with you 100%. Nobody, nobody deserves to, to have this. And I think the point you're making, which I didn't really have never thought of, but it's true, Michael, that. We are supposed to believe our president, for God's sakes. Believe, you know, you may yeah. not agree with the policy. Not agree, not agree necessarily, but at least you should be speaking the truth. Honest, of course. Yeah. God, if that we don't have that, we're screwed. We're yeah. totally screwed. And that is a profound point. And that is something that somehow ought to be in Biden's messages also. You know, I, am, I may make mistakes, but I will never lie to you. I will tell you what we think we know best, and I will tell you when I'm not sure. But that reestablishment of faith in the words that come out of the American president is so incredibly important that it's actually, it's given me the chills to think about that. It is a core fundamental reality of what we need in the presidency. You know, I must tell you, and I've been, you know, I've been working since, since the Dukakis campaign on the, on the Democratic side, but there were people, you know, like, uh, Colin Powell, until he was humiliated by Bush around the Iraq war, which is horrendous, was a Republican. I said, you know, I kind of believe this guy. I could, I could, I could live with him as president. He, nobody's perfect, but it's, that's the kind of thing where, what, why did I even think that? And now I'm, as I'm remembering it, I'm thinking what you just said. I want somebody that we can believe. And we have right now the, the absolute antithesis of that. Absolute. Right. It's, so, it, there's no attempt at all on his part to let the truth run free, regardless of where it lands. And, or regardless of subject. And, or regardless of subject. You just pick anything. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people had a good laugh over it for a while. He was, he was quite the comedian. And then it wasn't funny anymore. And now. It's deadly. It's deadly. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, so we, so instead of thinking about, you know, conventions or the final couple primaries, I guess, I guess we're done with the primaries now, but it, it just, it, it, Joe Biden needs to just, I just, I just think people will follow his ideas, his advice, his, his holding our collective hand um, to get through these months because we can't have inaction. 
for the next six months. No, we can't. And I think you should reach out to him. Seriously, Mike, if you can do that, I think you should reach out to him. I'm sure he'll take your call. And uh, I think you should basically tell him exactly what we just said. Including well, the- I, I hadn't, <laughs> yeah. Including the, that. yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't thought um, of actually doing that, but you know, um, why not? Right? Yeah. If I if I believe that strongly, that I think that he can, through his actions now, save lives. Yeah. Um. That why not do that? Yeah. Why not? You have absolutely nothing to lose, and you're one what of the few people that could yeah. actually, you know, you you actually can get to him. So, uh. You, and the sooner the better, I must say, now that you've said that. Now I'm going to yeah. not stop. I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about it. But yes, you should. I hope you do. You know, he had these moments during the Obama years where just out of the blue, he just was himself. Yeah. And 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 he moved the, the ball so far, so fast down the field, for instance, on gay marriage. That, yeah. that that was yeah. a long dead. That subject was dead after the 2004 election and all the states that made it part of their constitution. And then yeah. and then he just randomly out of nowhere. And this is again the comedians love to make fun of this, but he just says it one day <laughs> on yeah. one of those Sunday morning shows or whatever. And it's all I'm. Obama's like, oh, you put me in a pickle now, you know. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, but that's the way. That's how change happens. I think it is. And and, and Biden you know. is in his own way, uh, he's his own disruptor. And what we need right now is some serious disruption so that science, medicine, and citizens can together uh, 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 stem some of this death and destruction until until he's actually in office. Without, I don't like to say that because you can't assume that. Please remember what happened in 2016. Uh, so, you know, everybody again has to do their part, but I'm not talking on a political thing tonight. I'm talking about, you know, what, what we, and you, and you just actually, you made me think of this because you were presenting, you were for your op-ed that you're going to have in the daily beast. And, and I, I thought, well, yeah, why should, I should be, <laughs> I should be yeah. writing this down. And so thank you for, I mean, for just inspiring me with what, with those words of yours and what, and what you're doing. Uh, to that, because I, I did not plan on having this this part of the discussion in in tonight's uh, podcast. But well, uh, I'm glad we did, and uh, you know, it's, it's very so, yeah, conversation, and I'm really no, glad on to. And uh, this is you know we're facing reality uh, of the decisions that we make from the from voting to wearing a mask. It's it's it ends up being this extraordinary uh, reality in a democracy where our little actions done collectively create major change. And I think that's, that's a key point here. And I think getting the people like Biden to say that directly and having you keep saying it uh, over and over again, this is what makes us a, a democratic, you know, small D society, and which is what we all want, basically. Right. You want to have a great country. You know, it's so funny how he still he steals this make America great again thing, which is still aggravates the crap out of me. You know, it's like uh, you know, I was like, shut up is what you feel. It's like it's intolerable. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But um you know, and and by the way, and I, I don't know this whole what's what's the other I just wanted to just one other thing I wanted to say, which is that Michael, isn't it extraordinary that this unbelievable movement to social justice 
happens in the middle of this freaking biological crisis, this pandemic. There's something bone chilling about it. You know, it's that these two things have come crashing together at a time of real awakening about what we need to do to make sure that we stay safe and healthy at the same time that we're recognizing how critical it is to fix what is so deeply broken about the U.S. from the beginning of slavery till this very moment. Mm. And I find that an extraordinary, unexpected coalescence of these issues. And I don't know what you think about that, but I I think it's been, yes, it's absolutely amazing. But also I'm so proud of the young people who have risked their lives. Absolutely. Going to these protests. The, the, the last the last time you should ever have a protest is during a pandemic. And the fact that they've been out there in what they, I think the Times or one of the papers said, this is really the largest political protest in terms of numbers of people. In and, our, duration, and duration of it also. And, and the duration of it is incredible. It's I'm, I'm so moved uh, by it. It gives me a real hope, not fake hope, but yeah. real hope. And, and the other... The other thing about it is, imagine like in one of your books or an op-ed or whatever, if like say 10, 15 years ago, uh, you had written um, the, a line that said something to the effect of, uh, you know, one of the awful things that happens during an epidemic is that people are no longer able to uh, 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 voice their 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 political thoughts and rights and and. Right. And, right. you know, that, that you could never, you never would be able to have any kind of social movement during a pandemic. That's a line you might have, I would have said it, you might have written it, you know, well, back, back then. Maybe today, not. Maybe. You know, today, my wife gets, she went to Pomona College and uh, she gets, so today, the monthly, whatever is magazine, and there's an essay in it. Actually, I would like to send it to you where it, the, the author's point was that the pandemic has allowed authoritarian governments to thrive. And it is becoming, because they're using the existence of the pandemic to reinforce uh, non-democratic methods of controlling populations. It is, it is fascinating and frightening. Mm, and, wow. uh, you know, this is uh, Trump's playbook also, but uh, God, there's so much intermixing now of politics and pandemics. Yeah. And social change. I mean, what a time this is. But maybe the silver lining of this is that these other changes, like, for instance, the fact that we 40 to 50 million people have at some point during this pandemic lost their jobs. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, uh, b- back during the during the primaries and the debates and whatever, uh, you know, people, not not me, not because, you know, I, I believed in what Bernie believed in, but, but most of the Democratic candidates, it seemed, were arguing that, you know, most of the people get pretty good health insurance on their job. And I know that. I was raised by a UAW yeah. uh, father, you know, worked on the yeah. assembly line for General Motors. Sure. So, boy, we had great health care. I mean, yeah. uh, the absolute best. And and so people, it was said, you know, don't want to give that up. And I understood that. Um, but 
But it wasn't until now I get all this mail from people who've lost their jobs. And they said, I never thought about that something like this could happen. And, and, and even though the, the PPP, you know, the un- extra unemployment yep. insurance yep. Uh, has been actually quite good up until now, we're going to enter a very bad phase of this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but no extension of anybody's health care. So if you worked on the assembly line at Ford or General Motors, if yeah. you worked somewhere where you had good health insurance, it suddenly vaporized. And, and people are now, they're like, oh, geez, maybe it's not a good idea that our health insurance should be tied to the job. It's, it's heartbreaking. And they are now, as we speak, they are trying to dismantle the Obamacare stuff that we have. And, it's amazing, and amazing, yeah. It's, it is stunning. It is stunning. And they're sort of getting away with whatever they're doing because people are not paying attention to it, really. But the very idea that anyone would even think of removing any kind of health care is in criminal, basically. You know? don't, after we're through this, isn't one of the changes we need to see that nobody should ever have to worry again Never again. without without health insurance, that it is, that it is a right and it's not a privilege. It's not something that you earn. You're a human being. And frankly, what we've, I think what a lot of people learned with the pandemic and how easy it is to catch something from somebody is you can have people, people who don't have health insurance, they don't go to the doctor. And if they don't go to the doctor, they go to work. They, they're sick. Other people get sick. Absolutely. Everybody should, all, we're all tied into each other. This is what we've learned during this pandemic. So that means we all have to be covered. We all, none of us should ever have to worry about going bankrupt uh, if we get sick. Can't, can't this, can't we fix this in, in, in the next, you know, year, two, three, five. I mean, by the way, that's another thing that Biden should say when you speak to him, he should say what you just said, never again should any American have to worry about whether they're going to, they're going to have healthcare. Never. We cannot have that. We, we, we're, we are wealthy enough and we are resourceful enough to make sure that, 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 that never happens and that we have a system that is based on, on, on humanity and kindness and love yeah, and support absolutely. for each other and not this, not this God awful for-profit uh, system. I'm watching these because I'm, I'm here in New York. So I see these commercials on the hospitals are having to do commercials now to please come back and have your elect, elective surgeries because uh, yeah. we're not, we're not, they're, they're going under the hospitals are going broke. I know, I know it's a, it's a whole, it's a sick system and that's, you know, but I want to tell you one other thing, you know, uh, yeah. I, when I was 27, my first job as a physician, I was a pediatrician and, uh, I was the medical director for a, uh, a federally funded clinic in East Arkansas, Lee County, Arkansas. It was the sixth poorest county in the United States. It was rampant racism. They were just taking down the colored waiting room signs and the couple of local doctor's offices. And mm. uh, I, you know, I was, I was a Kennedy Johnson generation kid. And I, I would tell people, I wrote this in this book that I wrote, the last one was called The Future of Us, uh, which is coming out in paperback uh, soon, but I, I, in the book, and I relate this story that I would tell people in 1971 and 72 and 73 that we were going to be done with child poverty. We we're going to end racism. We we're going to have health care for everybody, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years. And here I am, you know, a half a century later, and I look at my own children and grandchildren and feel like, how is it that we still are festering 
these horrible problems and have made so little progress. Um, I don't understand what, what we, how we failed to fix some of these fundamental injustices and, uh, and just un- impossible situations. In, it, it's, in it is, it's very sad. And I think, and you know, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but, but you know, if you came of age in the sixties and, and seventies, uh, yeah. um, we believed that the world that we would hand our children and our grandchildren would be such a better world. And, um, and the fact that that doesn't happen, I, I have to say, I, there's a certain amount of, um, of shame. I feel that I do too, Michael, I do but, too, but, but you and I are still alive. You and yeah, I, I, know, I still, noticed that just this morning. <laughs> <laughs> we can still, we can still make it better. We can still work. Yeah. Toward the, oh, and, toward and this. I am. I'm done. I know. I know. And we should be, and we should never stop. And uh, we can't stop. And thank God we've got so many millions, tens of millions of young people, young adults yeah. who, get, who get it. And yeah. um, we need to support them and, and be with them and, I believe I, and this is again, I truly believe because one thing I've learned listening to you on TV is this is not the bubonic plague. Um, right. this, this is a, a virus, a coronavirus, yeah. and it will yeah. end. It will yeah. end. There is an end to this. It's not 300 years from now. It's not, it's not a hundred no, year plague. It is going to end. And on the, and when we end it, the sooner, the better on the other side of this, can't we be a better people? Can't we, can't we, what have we learned during this time to where, whether it's with healthcare, whether it's with all sorts of things. I've, I've told this story before. And when I saw that whatever governor a few weeks or months ago, in order to, because there's such a problem with COVID-19 in our prisons. Yeah. Oh. And, and one day he just said, we're releasing um, everybody who's, who's in, in, jailed, you know, for they're being released for, th- you know, Anybody who didn't do anything serious, we're letting them right. go. For minor, if, minor crimes, wasn't that De Blasio and Rikers and all that? Was it? Was it him? Yeah. Well, I know he. Yes, he is. He's been saying that about Rikers for some time. But I. But yeah. I was. I. This was. This, this was a more conservative governor. And my thought was, yeah, if they didn't do anything serious, why are they locked up to begin with? Don't. Can't we create a system where the, for the people who don't do something serious, but they screw up, or they need help because they have an addiction, or any of the other reasons? Why don't we create a system for that? And and because we've shown d- during the pandemic, we've yeah. let a whole lot of people out of out of prison uh, yeah. who because yeah. we're admitting they didn't really need to be locked up like animals like that. And if we've admitted that now, we should be admitting it. You know, five months from now, five years from now, that's that should be our new. I don't. We could go. Listen, we could go on forever with this, but yeah. uh, you've triggered so many so many uh, thoughts here in my head and. and and I, um, you know, I want to give you the last word here in terms of, uh, you, you know, you're, you're speaking on my podcast. We're, we're not on network television uh, now. Uh, and as I said to you before, you know, we started here that uh, um, you've got a lot of people listening uh, to this podcast yeah. who are from the, uh, the Flint, Michigans of, of, this, um, of this country and this world. And right. you mentioned to me that you <clears throat> and your um, – uh, office have been very helpful to the people of Flint uh, during the water poisoning. Yeah. And um, so th- I thank you again for that. Um, greatly appreciate it. But, but I, I just, you, I, I, you have been a wise man uh, through much of this. You warned 
us about a lot of this long before it happened. Um, and, uh, you know, without having to worry about, there's no commercial break we're going to, but just, yeah. you know, your final thoughts, words, uh, ideas, whatever. Um, uh, I, I just, I want you to share that uh, with people before we end. Well, uh, let me start by saying, uh, talk about the pandemic, which is worse than anything we've seen in over a hundred years. Well, the, you know, 1918 Spanish flu, uh, was a devastating problem that occurred way before we have modern medicine and, and the modern ability to identify and track and deal with uh, pandemics. Uh, we are not handling this well. But at the end of the day, I think, Michael, what you said is absolutely true. That is that this will be over. It will be over. The question is, and I've asked this in, in the book I wrote on disasters, do we learn the lessons that we should learn? People keep talking about wake-up calls. You know, Katrina was a wake-up call. Hurricane Maria, it was a wake-up call. This pandemic is going to be looked at as a wake-up call. The problem is we actually act as if it's more like a snooze alarm, generally speaking. In other words, we get aroused. There's a lot of attention. The me media is spotlighting it. Uh, the question is, will we actually stay aware of the lessons that have been learned and do everything in our power to do better the next time because there will be other calamities that we'll face who knows what they'll be that is one thing the second thing is that in many ways this is also a fight about social justice and the way uh, america and ultimately the world wants to be which is that this attitude that we're in this together. We are a collective society. We're not defined by our political party at election time. We're defined by sharing communities and learning the lesson that it is so important to help every one of us get through these crises and, uh, and survive and thrive. And the third thing I would say is that uh, one of the things that's driven me in my career is the issue of fairness, of opportunity for children. This is what has driven me since the beginning of my career through the development of the Children's Health Fund and what was in this book, uh, The Future of Us, which is that it is a shame uh, for us that every child in America, regardless of background, race, etc., have an opportunity to thrive and to have equal opportunity to other children. And I'm mentioning that in the context of our conversation about the pandemic, because uh, blacks and people of color have about tripled the rate of getting infected and dying of COVID. It is part of the, uh, the inequities that have to do in our healthcare system and where people work and who's essential uh, workers and so on. But we have to deal with, you know, we have to be able to, you know, what's the expression? whistle and walk down the street at the same time or chew gum at the same time, but we have to deal with the social inequities and we have to get much better at the collective solutions to helping each other out of crises like this uh, pandemic. Wow. Well put. I thank you for being part of this and, uh, and part of the fight because it is well, a fight. I, I thank and, you so much for having me. Uh, this well, was just, like the time went so quickly. I can't believe it, but uh, yeah. So we'll keep it we'll up. Thank you, yes. Michael. Thanks come for back, come back again. And uh, I'm, I'm going to make that call. 
uh, to Joe Biden. <laughs> if you don't let me know how it turned out, I'm going to be very upset. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'll I'll uh, I'll let you know. So good luck and keep me posted. I will do that, and thank you, and thank your wife for being the founders uh, with Paul Simon of the Children's Health Fund. Uh, it has expanded uh, beyond New York City into many states, and uh, uh, it's it's this thing I've seen it over the year. These mobile medical units that go into yeah. neighborhoods, yeah. and and bring your kids. It's free health care, totally uh, free. Nobody's ever asked for any money or anything, and it's, it's what we've done. And we've done nearly five million healthcare encounters for uh, wow. underserved Indigenous children around the country. It's been, uh, you know, quite a ride. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for your work at uh, Columbia, and um, and um, I'll I'll see you on, on the other side of this. Sounds good. All right, Take thank care. you, Doctor Irwin Redliner. Good night, and thank you all of you who have been listening uh, to this episode. Uh, episode episode number 99 of Rumble. Wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to here episode 99. And um, we'll be back at you here in uh, the next uh, few days. Uh, take care. This is Rumble, and I am Michael Moore. <laughs>